are in the Grotto Pod. We are in the Grotto Pod. We are all together here in the Grotto Pod. There's plenty of room. Come on in. It's grand. I think that's the best word to describe it. I have a very puzzled look on my face right now. Because it's not grand. And, and you're not welcome in. You're welcome in oh. emotionally, spiritually. Spiritually. If actually, if, radio we had wave. You, if we had you all in, it would end up looking like one of those 1950s deals where all the students were stuffed into a phone booth. Yes. You ever seen those if pictures? If three of you came, it would look like that. Well, there's going to be three of us soon because our guest today is Mangela Martin, uh, author of Scratch. Ooh, a, I, a, know, topic, a, a topic. A topic. I just threw my notes down, so I can't. I got to. A topic everyone is interested in. That's what I'm trying to say. Writers, money, and the art of making a living. Now, this is for me a fascinating topic uh, because not just for you, Larry. I don't know how to make a living writing, (laughs) and I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Same. Uh, One of the things that is sort of an unspoken undercurrent here at the San Francisco Writers Grotto, Mm -hmm. the world famous San Francisco Mm -hmm. Writers Grotto, is how people are making a living or if they're making a living and the things people do to make a living. You might be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't be surprised, actually. (laughs) Remember when we were interviewing Poe and Ethan and one of them said, yeah, books were big back then. Yeah, it's like books are big. I back know, then. and they're and big I myself, for us. Yeah, I, I myself still? have first witnessed firsthand the decline of print journalism. Yeah, and lost my ability to make a living. Actually, I was going to say, it. Larry and I both made our livings as writers mm-hmm. in the nineties, and the that's 90s, when Poe and Ethan were talking about. And yeah, early two thousands too. Yep. So it's something that gets kicked around here a lot. And Mangela Martin has gone ahead, and well, she had an, um, which is interesting. She had an online uh, magazine, e-zine. yeah, e-zine. oh, e-zine. E-zine, right? as, as the kids Ooh. like to say, yeah, uh, that discussed this topic, and of course, didn't make a living off of it. I'm sure. We don't know. Um, we don't know. I subscribed. I paid to subscribe because that's the kind of thing I like to do in the writing community. Let's give a little back. I do. Well, Seriously, give a little money back. Plus, there were some really good stuff, things in there. Yeah. So now she's got a book, and the book is a collection of essays uh, by writers about how you make a living. And I can't stress to you enough how many podcasts I could complete discussing this one topic. Oh my! Well, yeah, discussing we could discuss endlessly. I mean, I how many lunches revolve and you know, around right? This? And it's not. And it's funny. One thing that shocked me once at a lunch here was someone asked me how much I charge hourly to freelance, and yeah. I thought, oh, geez, because you know how when, I don't know about you, but like growing up, my dad was a white collar guy, and he's, and the whole like it's oh, just under you don't you do never neither neither ask nor tell what you make. That is your business. Not only that, but do you remember, I don't think it's like this anymore, but several times in the past when I was in my youth and beginning to work, I would my youth, I was told by employers, you're making this much, don't tell anyone else. Which is kind of spooky. I know. And I mean, that happened a bunch of times. ESPN told me that. That's interesting (laughs) because I was just going to say we had a revolt at ESPN. What some of you may not know, and if you're listening to this podcast, you may not even know about ESPN because you may not be a sports person, but... But let's not make any assumptions let's about not make any writers assumptions. because we're writers. In the 90s, when Bridget like and I ESPN. both worked at ESPN uh, separately without even knowing it in different cities. Correct. ESPN was known, which I didn't know until later, for underpaying its employees. In fact, right when I quit there, uh, they gave us all a bonus out of nowhere to get us up to market level. Before you left. I have to stress that I was a freelancer for ESPN. Okay, so I was working for the, their offshoot NBA.com, WMA.com sites. And, um, yeah, not only that, but here's the idiot I am, um, in case after three episodes you're not – it's not clear. Um, four episodes, actually. Um, well, there you go. So I had just 
I was deciding what to do. These guys I knew who I'd been writing for asked me to edit their magazine. It was a magazine for lawyers, but it was like a lifestyle magazine for lawyers because I'm not a lifestyle magazine. Journalist, I was like, lawyers are people too. They care about music and art and all this stuff, and they have the money to pay for it. And these guys were funny, and they were totally supportive. And I'm like, do I take this job? And then. ESPN comes through, here's your bonus. And it was like $11,000. Whoa, that's huge. That's the bonus. And I use that opportunity not to take the $11,000, but to say, I cannot be bought for $11,000. Ooh, I bet you could now. To get the other job. And then six months later, I left for dot com riches. And then the market crashed. Story of our lives. Smart move, Rosen. Okay. Uh, are you ready to bring Mangela Martin? Now that we I both know am. how to pronounce her name. I know. It's one of those awkward things. It's like reading a word that you've never heard said out loud. Uh-huh. Even though Mangela and introduced herself to me the first time. I am Mangela. Then I was afraid not, to say it after that because I wasn't sure. For a long time, I was afraid to say it. Not to reflect too much prevailing culture here at the uh, San Francisco Writers Grotto. But uh, at first, I thought it was Manuela. Uh-huh, yeah. And then I thought, well, it's got to be something like Manjula, something exotic, something with an interesting pronunciation. There's no way someone's walking through these hallowed halls with a name that just sounds like Angela with an M stuck in front of it. But, but she is. turns out she is. And so cute. And so cute as a button. But let's go get her now and continue talking about money because I know you all want to hear it. That's all they want to hear. Here all we right. Tiny yeah. little grotto pod. So welcome to the pod. Thank you. Grotto pod. This is like a pod or a chrysalis. <laughs> when we emerge from here, we will be uh-huh. fully realized. Because I'm a little cramped. A little cramped. Angela and I are very close together. We're rubbing shoulders. It's okay. We're friends. I know. That's lucky. That is good. And that's sort of one of the purposes of the podcast. But whether or not we emerge from here fully realized, another question remains. How will we make a living? And that is why you're here. Good question. Tell us, Manjula, how will we make a living as writers? <laughs> Actually, my first question, right now, Manjula, right now. how do you make a living? Uh, that's a good, Let's that's go a personal. Good yeah. personal. I've been noticing some someone's personal stuff on Twitter. Pay, someone's so got to pay for those tats. I want to hear. Yeah, I know. We're looking at some beautiful tattoos. I'm looking Thank at the you. skyline of Manhattan <laughs> and some flowers. Portland roses. Portland oh, roses. So this is places you've lived. We. Uh, if you really want the full story, the right side of my body we is do. places I've lived. Where's the Eiffel Tower? Um, it's actually coming. Okay, good, good. But I, you know, you know when you is going to get a tattoo of in Paris, one should do it in Paris, right? <gasps> oh, oh my God. I didn't I get a tattoo. I went to Paris for the first time two summers ago. Did not get a tattoo, however, did get to Finland by sort of a rogue Chabad rabbi. Oh, cool. While eating falafel, so that's very that sounds very good. He called me. He 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 outed me. I was trying to go. You know, I was trying to pass, and he said, "You're Jewish," and I went, "No, come on." That's deeply disturbing in a certain way. I, apparently, I, I radiate. It's like Gadar, Jew, but yeah. Judar. Yeah, his Judar was, it was strong. <laughs> oh, it can be. All right, let's let's okay, let's let's okay, let's so hear before you start making coffee. Yeah. Um, at the moment, I make my living by having a regular job, a nine-to-five mm. salaried job. You which may have is? heard of those. Um, I'm the managing editor of Zoetrope All Story, okay. which is a short story and art magazine published by Francis Ford Coppola. So have you met Franny, as my mother would say, because she claims they went to college together? I have met Francis. Um, we worked together shorts? sometimes. Was he wearing shorts? I've seen him crossing the yeah. street in shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. He does enjoy Hawaiian shirts. Uh, in my experience, he has never worn shorts around me. Because okay. no one in San Francisco wears shorts. The entire family has impeccable time. fashion sense, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but 
all yeah. that. Okay, but that's a very cool job. It's not just right. humdrum nine to five. You are the managing editor of a fantastic literary magazine. Thank you. Widely distributed, great writers. Like that's it's, a dream come true in itself. Maybe yeah, I don't want know, to put words in your mouth. Literally, my dream job. Um, oh. <laughs> when I first moved to San Francisco in 2000, and I was working at Green Apple Books, I would read All Story like on the night shift at the counter. Someday. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't verbalize it in that way, but yeah, someday. Um, and so it actually relates to our topic today, how I got this job, um, which is that somewhat ironically, I got it because I originally was an unpaid intern at All Story. Ooh, okay. Um, interesting. And then before I stayed you, in touch. So before, and, and you were an adult, it wasn't a college thing, right? So it was a college oh, thing. Oh, it was a college thing. Um, okay. I was a college dropout. Oh my God. And I Get out. Now. finished my degree in 2009. Oh, okay. Just in time for the economic crash. Mm-hmm. I was 30-something. And the degree is in? Uh, liberal arts. So obviously, <laughs> something that would have guaranteed a six-figure job before the economic crash. Definitely. It was just you bad had timing. to get that degree. It was just bad timing. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and while I was there, um, it was at Mills College, uh, where I went because I, I was offered more financial aid than from San Francisco State because I was a working adult and as such made more money than a lot of the other folks applying who were maybe right. younger. Than right, me. right, right. Um, so while I was at Mills, I was like, this is my chance. I was never able to do an unpaid internship before because I've always had to earn a living. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do it. Where, If I could be an intern Dream anywhere, where would, I, where would it be? And the answer was All Story. Um, and luckily, they hired me. Okay. Since, we're, since this podcast is about finances, yeah. how were you making a living while in college? Was it loans? Were you just stipend? What? I took out loans, which I'm still paying off. I have probably Raise your hand if you're still paying off loans. Everyone is raising their hand. Raising Note their hand. all three hands all in three the air. Hands. Well, I have about $50,000 left. Oh. Um, which is, you know, a lot Substantial. of fucking money. Yeah. Can I yeah. say that? Yeah. It's the worst we kind have, of money. We have, we have no idea what we can say and what we Actually, can't say. Yeah. Okay. We can. can I don't know. All is safe inside the grotto pod. It's true. Safe space. It's a comforting place. It is a safe space. Um, so, yeah, so I took out some extra loans to enable that to happen for just a semester. Um, and I was also, so while I was in school, I, I had loans, I had some scholarships and some, you know, non-loan financial aid, like grants. Um, and I was working. I was freelancing as a copywriter and an editor. Um, I had left a salary job writing for nonprofit organizations um, I was worked for a theater company, ACT. Mm. Good one. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. For seven years, I think. Six wow. years. Oh, wow. That was like my main job that I'd had before I decided to go back to school. Um, and so I think I still did, I think, a bit of freelance work for them when I was in school. And then I also got a wonderful job sort of editing um, the memoir of a woman who is a prominent BDSM and porn, feminist porn oh, star. Oh, boy. Well, that's where the money is. Uh, yeah, yeah. maybe not in the editing. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, when you were so for for people outside of this world who take out loans in college, the thinking is eh, no big deal. This is going to lead to a lucrative job, 
and I'll be able to pay him back. It's different in the writing world. We take out a loan, and it's basically like like I used to feel taking money out of the ATM when I was a waiter, like I'm falling off a cliff. Well, there's a great line in Scratch, Mangela's new book, on what's the what's the subtitle? Writer's Money and the Art of Making a Living. Excellent. Yeah. Cheryl Strade says something like, um, it's the one profession where you get out of school and you might make $5 and you might make $5 million. Some some phrase like that. And there really is no, you know, look at this, you're going to get the job on Wall Street and you're going to be yeah. able to pay it back. There's nothing like that. I remember when I, uh, it's in 1988, no wait, in 93, I finished grad school, creative writing, moved to Seattle. I'm going to get a job with a, with a music magazine. Yeah. Nice. So I sent cover letters out to all the local music magazines and everyone. I could feel their chuckles when yeah. they said, there's no staff job. What are you talking about, staff job? You can freelance for 10 bucks. Go for it. And that was in the 90s. Uh, yeah. It's probably worse now. I would venture to say it's probably worse now. Yeah. yeah. Um. Would you say it's harder to just to make money as a writer now? Or is this just a journalist thing? Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, the journalism industry has demonstrably had some financial problems. Easier to get published, harder to get paid. Exactly. Um, I think publishing has always been a little wacky in terms of books. Like, the market goes up and down, and there are a lot of, like, trends that editors and publishing houses identify that maybe the general public has no idea of. Um, And just advances. Advances are all over the map. Roxane Gay who's also in your book, she had advances as low as something like 12000 and as high as over 100000 Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And who knows what she got for her last book. Exactly. You know? um, so I think it, it has always been not super easy to earn a living as a writer. Um, I think what has changed is that um, it seems as though there used to be, or at least I hear there used to be a situation in which one could have a day job and then have the both mental and physical time and space to write on the side. Right. And day jobs have increasingly um, encroached on our lives. Now, let me ask you. Very true. Let me ask you this. In both of your experience, what type of day job lends itself more to productivity after work writing? One that has something to do with writing or one that doesn't? Are you better off digging ditches or editing Zotrope? I've done both. No, I haven't really dug ditches, but I've worked metaphorically, um, and they each have trade-offs. I mean, I think one of the things that's amazing about working in a field that's involved in writing and editing is that I really think that, like, when I was a copywriter, I wrote all day, and that was practice. I mean, writing is writing. Well, your writing's writer the more mode. You write. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the other hand, maybe you write all day. You don't want to come home and write. It's like if you work at an ice cream store, maybe you don't eat as much ice Especially cream. Especially if you're you copywriting. I would say, in my experience, the job that lent itself the least to getting writing done was teaching, um. and that <laughs> is something that a lot of writers do. And Amen. I think that's borne out by scratch that many people are making their living in academia. And I didn't even teach writing. I think that would be I taught art I history, did. and that would be you know even more difficult. The best jobs I ever had for writing one was working at the front desk of a gallery, nothing after you know just yeah. hanging out, yeah. literally reading Vanity Fair until someone walked in. It's just upscale good- people, you know. In Vanity Fair? Vanity I mean, in, Fair is in, Upscale People magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, That's why I liked it. it. That's yeah. why I liked it. Exactly. Salacious. Um, and then the other was um, working as an editorial, what would you call it? Uh, the front On the editorial page before scanners, I typed in the letters to the editor. Oh, yeah. And so kind of corrected them. So I was sort of working with words and I was adjusting things and making them more pithy and tighter and but not changing the meaning. And mm-hmm. 
So it wasn't in any way like journalism, but I was on the newsroom floor. I knew what was happening. I was paying attention to writing. I was reading closely every day, but none of that carried, was taxing. Yeah, I have a similar experience with All Story, I think. Um, I'm the managing editor, so the bulk of my responsibilities lie in like production management, uh, some great degree of art direction. Like I work with our guest designers a lot. That's my favorite thing about um, the magazine is how beautiful it is, along with the great writing. It's really it's fun. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we have some amazing art artists who come and guest design. We have a different designer for each issue. Um, so each issue looks entirely different too, which is so good and entertaining. Um, and I, you know, I am, I am involved in the submissions process and I do, I do discuss, uh, potential stories that we're going to publish with the editor, Michael Ray, but he's the one doing the line editing. And that is wonderful to me because while I really enjoy editing and, have, you know, I'm pretty good at it. Like, it's really nice to sort of, as you said, be involved in publishing and journalism and sort of be in it, but also reserve that tiny little part of your brain for yourself and your own work. Well, and what I've always found ironic is that people assume if you're a writer, you're also an editor and a teacher, whereas the three skills aren't necessarily overlapping. Hmm. I think, don't you think editing is overlapping with writing I'm a if, terrible editor of your own work no well, i've had jobs yeah. as an editor and i've like Ooh, not only do right, i right it's this, definitely I'm a skill set especially with dealing with other people and dealing yeah. with their work but yes. the words on the page but it's true i have a friend who ended up becoming an agent she's just a brilliant editor there are just people who really right. are amazing yeah it's a real yeah. talent. it's a real skill I love editing. I love editors. I think that it's a very unheralded skill. I agree. Um, and people, writers tend to like to bitch about editors a lot, and I think that's crazy. I I <sighs> crave editing as a writer. Um, I, I agree. Bitch about people when they don't edit. <laughs> as a reader, nothing pisses me off more yeah. than reading a book where you can see the bones of what could have been fantastic, yeah. and it just needed an editor or editing or something yeah. along those lines. It's a tragedy. It's interesting that you brought up your friend who became an agent. Um, my agent actually has an essay in this book. The agent who mm. sold this book has an essay in the book. So I edited her, which was like quite mm. quite a reversal. And how was that? Oh, tell me. Did uh, you get pushback? No, it was lovely. She was amazing. Um, her name is Kate McKean, and she's a terrific person and agent. And she's a writer. She has a master's degree in writing. It's the same. Um, and her essay is about how, you know, she sort of does and does not have better insight into how to write books that will sell because of her day job, which is selling books. Mm. She does and she doesn't? As a writer? Mostly she doesn't. Like her, you know, it's, the essay is really about sort of like, it's called The Insider. Oh, I see. And it's about the perception that um, if someone is a literary agent, maybe they can just like write and sell a book of their own, easy peasy. Sure, they know they know how to connect the dots. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's not the case. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, that it, with her own work, I get it. Yeah, but but she's able theoretically to spot what she would want to take on because she thinks it would well, sell. That's, Definitely, that's her job. That's Correct. Her job. That's, that's why I was surprised. Job. That's what I was surprised. I I have to say, my first reader is also my agent. She's also a writer, Danielle Svetkov, and I could. She's mm-hmm. unbelievable. She's the best. Such a good editor. Such a good reader. I think in the it's publishing huge. business, agents are doing a lot more editing lately. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's one of these things where the writing industry involves all these jobs and people just want to be part of it in some way, shape, or form. We all have that in common. Well, and we all really like books. Right. And reading. 
Would you like reading? I think one of the things that's very hard to impart to young people, as I was a high school teacher for years, who want to be artists or writers, is you need to read and look at a lot of art. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. where it is. That's what it's about. It's not about, I mean, in the end, it can be that can be your impulse that you want to make these things. <laughs> but if you don't love to read and you don't love art, yeah. it yeah. will not happen. It will not happen. As Austin Kleon says, like, be a fan first. Be a fan. I do remember. As totally. A- as a beatnik obsessed, paid. yeah, as like a beatnik obsessed twenty year old, thinking I could write like Jack Kerouac and having an English teacher say, "Do you understand how much you read?" Correct. It's like people who think that they can paint like Jackson Pollock. It just doesn't work like that. <laughs> it does not work like that. Uh, but I want to get back to the last phrase you said there. Could you say it again? And then get paid. And then get paid. And then get paid. <laughs> Let's talk about so, getting paid. How do we do that? I'm taking notes. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I think, Students, you know, please just get your sort of out. to step back to a wider angle for a sec, I think, you know, one of the fascinating things for me about putting together this book was really sort of seeing proof positive of what I suspected, which is that everybody has their own way right. as a writer. Right. Like, no one is going to have the career that you have, and no one else has the specific uh financial, emotional, uh, labor resources that you have. No one is in your exact situation. Well, do you think if, if you go into a career, especially in fiction, let's say I'm going to write novels and I'm going to make a buttload of money. If you go into it with that attitude, you're a fool. Yeah. I agree. How could you not be? There's just not a whole lot of money to go around. But you're a fool, first of all, because it's, it's often not true. Um, but, and second of all, because like, that's no way to go into a career. Right, right. And also you can't control – there is no controlling the outcome of writing a novel. Right. You could write the greatest novel of the 21st century and the most titillating, let's say. And, and it, it might not sitting in your drawer sell. forever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, but isn't there a part of you – and maybe I'm just projecting – who kind of resents that? Like, great. I mean, haven't you – we've spent our entire adult professional lives, except for the times when you and I were teaching, having people tell us – Oh, yeah, I probably got a novel in me somewhere. I could probably do that, you know. Or probably opening they up, tell you, they have. you know, opening up the New York Times bestseller <laughs> and seeing books we wouldn't even read. You know, these are the people making a ton of money, and really, yeah. But also, like you know, it's a business. Um, you know, I think there's there's a lot to be said about understanding the difference between value and worth as a writer. Right. Um, Beautiful. Just because your work that? may not be considered valuable by arbitrary forces outside of your control doesn't mean that um, it's not worth something. Right. But what I would find frustrating is that we have chosen a career that requires education, smarts, requires everything every career requires. And on top of that, we have to tell ourselves, and I might be really good at it and never make a dime. Yeah, sure. But that's part of the fun, too. It's also I mean, your choice. I also just choice. feel like it's your choice and... You know, screw it. I made the wrong choice. That's it. I'm going to become a brewer. Well, that's legit. Do it. (laughs) Totally. And maybe it will turn out that you're going to write the ultimate, I don't know, insights into the brewing life, the history and romance and whatever of brewing. Yeah. I mean, along the way to making scratch, like allegedly I'm working on a novel. Right. Allegedly? (laughs) No, I am. Okay. Um, I haven't seen you in the novel writing group. Well, I don't come here anymore because I have a job. She has a job. Oh, not like right. you, Larry. Not just like me out at the grotto all day. I just hang, I just hang out in <laughs> well, and that's here. what I was going to say is what is the what is the other side that 
uh, at least I'm, I want to speak for you, but for us, I don't think the Larry pa- and I are the not patron relationship. Correct. We are, you know, not making fabulously lucrative careers. There's no way I'd be homeless. Correct. Same with me without our spouses. Yes. In San Francisco. Yes. Uh, we could maybe live somewhere else, but not here without our spouses. Larry and I. Only speaking for us. Or is it Larry and me? At any rate, the point is I, that. Okay. That. On the other hand, and we work hard, I'm often tired. I feel especially that my work days are very, very long because I'm trying to pack things in and make things happen. But look how cool my life is. Right. I get to do such amazing things right. and I get to read amazing things and I get to be part of the literary world. And that in itself is a kind of payoff. It's a payoff. It doesn't pay the rent. That's the problem. No. Um, it's a payoff. I mean, I think that it's, you know, it's a tricky balance because on the one hand, the job of being a person who makes culture is not easy and is not intended to be easy and mm-hmm. never has been. Um, so and that's, that's a perhaps myth. not a good reason to go into it. Um, on the other hand, it is not coal mining. It's not that bad. You know, right. I right. think there's a lot of sort of like, oh, poor writers. And I, I've, I've brought but this book to a lot of people. But we are not the most vilified group in America. <laughs> not today. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but there is a, there is a kind of attitude among writers and a lot and theater people and maybe dancers. I don't know any yeah. dancers, but and artists. Poor us, poor us. Yeah. It's so hard and we get yeah. shit on. And you know what? It's pretty great too. Yes, it doesn't pay the yeah. rent. You got to work. You got to work. Else. But also, complaining isn't going to make you Correct. get paid. Right. Um, so that and then for me, that was a very personal reason as to why I made this book, which is like I have these questions too for myself, mm-hmm. and I. Decided I was just going to go ask other writers what they thought. So is there a perception, since Bridget brought it up, is there a perception that because we have patrons, we're somehow lesser? Yes, I think that is. You mean because your partners, like, help pay the rent? They pay the rent. Who who has, who would have that perception? Other artists? Well, writers, you I, know, there I, was that woman who wrote the piece, was it in Slate or Salon, about her husband being her patron? Do you remember this? A couple of years ago? She got serious. Yeah. And I remember reading yeah. it thinking, and I'm sorry that I don't remember your name. Um, her name. Her name. Well, I was speaking to her. I was speaking okay. as I don't either. It's actually, I mentioned that piece in the intro to the book. Oh, oh maybe that's where I was yeah, on the front I, of my mind. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, both as an art historian where I have news for everyone, almost all the art made in the Western world had some kind of patronage, patronage behind it. Yeah. And, you know, I had to wait a long time to have this opportunity, 28 years, but... It, you know, I, but I worked that whole time yeah. for this moment where I could concentrate on my work, and so I don't feel apologetic. I feel psyched. See, I actually—I don't think anyone should apologize for having financial help. I think what people should apo- should feel bad about is um, not being honest about it. I mean, it's, it's sort oh. of like propping up this romantic notion of like the starving artist Absolutely. when, in fact, your husband owns a house or whatever, <laughs> right? Um, which in San Francisco is, you know, right. well, a lot more a little, than other places. I'm, I'm glad you brought that because I, I do feel a little sense of guilt about it, especially since joining the grotto a couple of years ago. There are people who are so accomplished. Yeah. Who don't, can't live in the city. Yeah. I live in the Correct. city. Yeah. You know, we do fine. And it's, of and then on the other hand, you know, there's like the day a couple of weeks ago, my wife got promoted. And the same day, yes, know, it's wonderful. And the same day, I sent three emails to a freelance client trying to track down $240 they'd owed me for three months. Yeah. And that's the world, for and sure. That is the way the world works. For sure. But there yeah. is that sense, like people, like, you know, my one of my favorite musicians is a guy named Joe Pernice. Pernice Brothers. Pernice Brothers. And he posted a video of his house, and it was like a one-bedroom apartment. I'm like, dude, wow. Like, I, 
think that guy, I think the world of what he does, and he would think the world of where I live. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just a yeah. weird sort of burden that you carry around. And there's also people who would say, well, you know, if you're living high on the hog, you're not hungry enough to create art. Well, maybe Bono can talk about that if he wants to. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's interesting listening to you say that just now. I think, you know, that's not unrelated to that sort of like artistic envy that you have of your friends and peers who you love very much when they have big successes. And you're right. like, why am I not on the bestseller list? Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And I think that... um one of the things I've been really interested in with this project with Scratch, as well as Who Pays Writers, the blog I run, um, is to sort of shift thinking from seeing other writers and other artists as some sort of competition and rather see them as a resource and a community. Mm. Um, you Which know, is what the Grotto does. I yeah. think we, I think it's it's really an amazing community that way. Yeah. And like, you know, I can guarantee you there are conversations in this hallway where people are sharing how much money they made or how they negotiated with someone to get a better rate for something. You know? It's so helpful. It's huge. It's everything. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, obviously there is competition. It is a somewhat, you know, tight field. But like the idea of being running around being grumpy because someone else has something that you don't have. Well, it may be emotionally very valid, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm more interested in sort of like what you do then after Mm -hmm. that. Like, what do you do next? So then what do you do? I mean, I'd like to hear more about, was it hard in the beginning, especially when you had your website, which I subscribed to? Yay, Yay, it was excellent. Uh, You know, was it hard to get people to talk, especially the first people, right? And why don't we want to talk about it? What yeah. is that about, do you think? Everybody has issues with money. Yeah, sure I know. It's like did sex. You, did you guys grow up being told you don't talk about how much you make? Absolutely. Me too. 100%. No, not at all. Really? You were free. Santa Cruz. That's the difference. Oh, Santa Cruz. Right there. Yeah. Bless the hippies. Um, <laughs> they didn't have I mean, <laughs> I would say I was probably like comfortably middle to lower class growing up. Yeah, same. And then in my, you know, my parents both worked for the university, but not in tenured or professor positions. Um, and my stepmom is a elementary school teacher. Um, so, you know, definitely an intellectual and artistic upbringing, but not rolling in the cash. Um no, no one ever told us that. <laughs> um, I think I do – in my personal experience, I have encountered some of like, you know, well, it's not polite to talk about money. But I often feel that right. the people who say that are usually people who have money. That's true. Um, and I understand that perspective. You know, again, Austin Cleon, who's in the book, um, is very adamant about like not disclosing his financial information because he – in his, his situation is – he says he doesn't think it benefits anyone. He doesn't think it benefits him. Like, in what way does he sort of get value out of telling other people how much he makes? I and can he see that. it as a privacy issue. And that's totally his right. Hmm. Um, and so we managed to have, like, a really stimulating, awesome conversation about money, and I don't know how much money he makes a year. <laughs> and that's fine. But why know? did he say yes to the interview? He said yes to the interview because he wanted to talk about it. I think, overwhelmingly, the writers who I have approached for interviews and essays um, have been, like, really excited First, they'll be really excited and they'll be like, oh, my God, it's like yes. The, it's like the dirty secret. No one ever talks about yeah. this. Let's talk about it. And then they'll get really nervous. It's funny. like, I don't know. Is this a bad idea? <laughs> I mean, in Cheryl Strait's interview, she is flat she, out with numbers. Yeah. Yep, she threw numbers around. And it, it, A, did not surprise me at all that she yeah. didn't have money for that first year. Didn't surprise me at all. Yeah. That you could be in that situation having to show up at fancy, I don't know, tour yeah. things mm-hmm. and not have afford a dress or whatever it is. 
And at the same time, it was it was refreshing and reassuring to hear, you know, it doesn't you land this thing, it might not change everything. Yeah. And people hear right. that number, a hundred thousand or wow. something for yeah. an advance and, and it takes realize, six years yeah, to write the novel or yeah, it sounds long. huge. Right. It's not you don't actually get a hundred thousand dollars, and you certainly don't get right. it all at once. You get sixty. Um, and um, I think that, like you know, because money tr- like pushes so many emotional buttons for mm-hmm. people, um, there is actually the positive side of that is that there is that sort of warm feeling of reassurance when you listen to other artists talk about how they make money, where you're like, oh, it's not just me. Well, and that's one of the benefits of the grotto as well. You find, oh, you're also freelancing a dumb article because. Pays a lot of money. Yeah, and we and we have arguments among ourselves. I, I remember, especially when I started at the Grotto, I think six years ago, blogging was really something that was gaining power, and there was a, a strong feeling with more old school journalists that those people were stealing their jobs. Huh. And it I was that. yeah, and 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 it was nice to have civil, heated conversations about it, and to hear that both sides had really valid reasons for what they were doing and were well served in both cases by the position they had taken. For example, creating a fashion blog and giving away supposedly a lot of content for free, but right. that led to a full career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that everyone needs to think about sort of where they draw their own line, and I do think there are places to draw the line. Um, I agree with that for you sure. You know, I think that um, particularly perhaps now as we go into a more restrictive political area or p- political era for writers, um, it, it's really important to think about, like, mm-hmm. what is selling out – you know, how am I going to pay the rent, but also how am I going to not be a shill for the man or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, and it's, and, and so much depends on luck. I, I have a book coming out in the spring that I thought yay. was going to dovetail, thank you, with the rise of the first woman president. Oh, it's a feminist sorry. book about feminism. And no, but you know what I started to realize? It doesn't matter. Right. Because different. there's a different reason why people are interested in feminism yeah. now. Yeah, we still need it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that- you can't predict these things. <clears throat> Uh, do you find now? First, let me confess something. Actually, let me complain about something. Yeah. I did not download your book because I tried five times and it wouldn't download. I just from it just, where it just spun from the i iBooks. It just spun. So Are you I, serious? I may have spent fifty five dollars and not gotten your book, but I did read the sample part, <laughs> so I got the Cheryl Strait interview at least. Uh, one I'm thing, surprised they give that as the sample. You'd think they would. No, they just give the first however many pages. Oh, I see. Got it. So I got to read your intro. Yes. And her and a couple other. Um, There's also a few excerpts uh, running around excerpts. on the internet this week on BuzzFeed and Vulture mm-hmm. and uh, the New Republic. Is the BuzzFeed is it actually factual or is it you know just? It's a personal essay by Emily Gould. Okay, so it is factual about um, being a woman in publishing. One thing that Cheryl Strayed, am I mispronouncing that? No, Strayed? I don't think so. Strayed. That she brought up was, um, <clears throat> say you get this advance, how responsible are writers in managing their finances? Do we oh, blow the advance? You hear the stories, don't you? Yeah, you hear the stories. Oh, boy. You know? Do we spend our money like wage earners or like lottery winners? Well, that's a good question. Um, when I got my advance, which was small in the low five figures, um, and from which I had to pay all the contributors to the book, um, when I got that, I emailed my agent and I said, what should I do with this check? <laughs> and because I am, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> um, and she said, save fifty percent of it until tax time. So smart. Yeah. And then she said, you know, and then buy yourself something nice with it, like something nice, something yeah. you can normally buy yourself. Like, give yourself a present. 
a tattoo, and then put for the rest example. Into me, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah. About what? Tattoos. Oh, some new tattoos. I know, because tattoos are expensive and you can't justify it all. No, because it's ridiculous. Yeah, but if you <laughs> prorate them over time, it's really very inexpensive. It's true. It's a daily cost. It's a monthly cost for me for a big one. Because you got to color in? Well, it takes months and months. Yeah. Oh, right, large right. I think um, you shouldn't go for the Eiffel Tower. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. It's not going to be the Eiffel Tower. But she wants to be Paris. Okay, Paris. just something. Okay, so, good. And, and I can't remember if this was part of our on-air conversation or not. Was it that we, about the tattoos yes. that yeah, it was? Yeah. Okay, so because I just want to say that uh, you have lived in New York City. Well, you grew up in Santa Cruz. You've lived in New York City. You've lived in Portland. You've lived in Paris. I have also lived in New York City. Boston. C- and Boston. Boston. I've also lived in New York City and Portland and, and San Francisco, expensive cities. The very, very, very hardest place we found to make a living, the place I was the poorest as an adult, was Portland. Oh, interesting. Why? Because salaries are so low. Mm -hmm. And that was really a shock for me. And I had been pretty much a freelancer in New York and had been able to survive doing that. But, and you'd think, oh, well, you can still freelance in Portland. And I did a little bit for ESPN. Big, you know, that was where the good money was coming from. Ah, But at the time, what you don't know is that ESPN was so notorious for underpaying the employees. Oh, I was underpaid. Of which I was one. Yeah. That eventually they had to send us all checks to get us caught up. Who got them to do that? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Because it wasn't a union. Well, regardless, because you could live anywhere and be a freelancer, for example, mm-hmm. and that helped very much because I was living in Portland. But the jobs that I had in Portland I, and my husband's jobs as well, we just could not make a living. Huh. I have no idea why that is. But I've often thought because there's a big art scene in Portland, mm-hmm. music, writing. Yeah. And I often think of those people and think, how do they do it? When how did they get by? I lived there, I think, 95, 96, 97, okay. somewhere yeah. around there. I was there a little after, 2000 to 2002. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you how we did it, because I was in Seattle we doing the, the same West. thing. Yeah. yeah. A lot. Well, again, I kind of had a patron at the time, but also worked in restaurants. Yeah, That's how I made a living when I was Well, I worked that. three jobs. One of them was te- was adjunct professor. That pays nothing. Mm-hmm. And worked at a climbing gym, yeah. which was okay. I never learned to be a... Waitress. It's a pretty u- I know that's util, like a way to make money, when right? When you're young, it's a util. It's yeah. hard. But Ugh, it it's really hard. I was horrible at it. If you can get the right gig, it's great. But yeah. I worked at a record store when I lived in Portland. I wasn't Fun. publishing, though. I was yeah. writing, but I wasn't publishing. Yeah. So that actually, um, And my, I had a studio apartment for $400 a month. Nice. Um, and no patron. I didn't even have a bank account, actually, because I had... Previously You're like some Gus Van Sant, Portland. Took away my bank account. Oh, um, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Yikes. So I, you know, I have I have a not awesome now. financial past myself. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, I mean, we lived on credit cards. Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't give me. A credit we card. once threw a party, and we bought the beer at Chevron. Because you can use gas card. Because you use gas card. Oh, yeah. that's like nice. a whole. Yeah. There's a As whole adults. tale in that. Oh As no, no. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think that I also think that cities are becoming increasingly unaffordable. Like Portland. Uh, is about to go through what San Francisco has gone through. In and terms Seattle of is going and through. And Seattle is going through it, too. And, like, um, I would just, you know, say, yo, heads up to our friends in Portland. Like, don't let us in. Don't let the Californians come. <laughs> no. And that was already happening in the mid-'90s. We, I mean, yeah. we found it very hard they because we us. had dogs. It was very hard to rent uh, a place. Yeah. And rents were much higher than what salaries were in Portland yeah. because people were moving there from California. Yeah. We and had that effect. Denver. There, we threw so, it right. to Denver, too. Um, but the good news is because we live in San Francisco, everything seems cheap to us after living here. Portland seems totally cheap to me. Seattle yeah, seems totally cheap. Yeah, it seems that way 
I so mean, you realize you have to work. While exactly. You're right. And that's why I keep warning people who are fleeing to Portland and Seattle. Just be aware. I mean, I think that um, there's a lot of conversations around, around like sort of where should we move? San Francisco is so crazy. What are we going to do? Um, and I'm somewhat not a party to those conversations because I have rent control and I've lived in the same apartment for 12 years. Right. So I can't move anywhere. Right. Um, in at least not in, certainly not in California. Um, because it would be more expensive than what I'm paying Unless now. it was maybe the Central um, Valley. So there's a kind of patronage that comes from That's true. I never a really good that. law. Yeah. Um. And, and when I lived in New York, everyone lived that way. All the artists and writers of I course, knew. Yeah. That's how they lived. Of but course. you know, actually, you raise an interesting point that I discussed with my son when he was looking at colleges two years ago. Um, he was looking at a school in Troy, New York. I don't know if you've ever been to Troy, New York, but it's a really cool Sounds cold. North? Looking north up yeah. by... Uh, Albany. Yeah. Cold. But this like Victorian city, super cold. Yeah. Yeah. Victorian, so tons of empty warehouses. And I was like, you know what? If I was an artist, I'd move here because I could rent a place for 200 bucks a month and do whatever I wanted. And he's like, yeah, but you'd be the only one. Mm-hmm. So what's the trade off? You know, if you want to go and live, you know, live like, uh, you know, Hemingway in the Garrett somewhere. But you can't be the only yeah, but, one. Yeah, but Hemingway had he Gertrude Stein. Right. I mean, I think every, <laughs> but, but you can't yeah. do it in Paris anymore. you got to do it in Troy, New York. I mean, I think on one hand that's like a super legit question. On the other hand, I, I think that – You can tell me I'm wrong. No, I don't think you're Great. wrong. But I just think that like it's important when having those kinds of conversations to like remember that like if you have the choice of where to live, you're actually doing okay in the first place. Mm. So um, it's not a well choice said. for a lot of people. Well, but if the choice is I can live, I can live in Troy and pay my 200 yeah. bucks a month and work at a coffee shop four days a week – and be able and live okay. Yeah. Or I can try to live in San Francisco and I get to get a job with Twitter. And move to Troy. Yeah, exactly. But who's going to move there with you? Because I'm your wife. I'm not going to Troy. <laughs> well, I'm thinking you might more not like, have to work. Oh, really? Okay, I'll go to Troy. <laughs> if I can keep, write. You just got to write My and eyes keep, just the, lit up. Uh, keep the warehouse. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm from Montana heated. and I for years had this fantasy that I could move back to Montana and live super cheap. Yeah. And there's a lot of writers in Montana. You know, I, I could have a literary community, right. and I could. But you know what? My husband he didn't want to leave Montana. Well, but this that brings up a good point. At Troy's an extreme. There are places like Missoula. Missoula's you know. not that cheap. I would say really? in this day and age, I encourage folks who want to be artistic professionals to live very cheaply if they can. To sort of move ahead, to remove the distractions, and to try and try and find a way to make a living that maybe doesn't eat up sixty to eight hours of your week, which is increasingly hard. Which is increasingly difficult because of phones. You know what John Gardner said? He said, choose a partner who supports your art. Yeah. My partner's been really, really supportive. Um, when I sold the book Scratch, I was not benefiting from a full-time job. I was freelancing um, and I was barely, barely. Right. And how many enough. hours a week were you putting into Scratch the website? The magazine? The magazine. Easily 20. Yeah. And no pay? No. Zero. Yeah. And it was great. It would look. It and it was good. great, and I loved it, it. And I would have kept doing it. If and you I got could to interview have. amazing people. Yeah, amazing um, people. So you know, it is a weird. I, I think that people. Sh- I think that writers should get paid as much as possible, whenever possible. But we also do sometimes do work that could be classified as a labor of love, and that's okay. I well, think that you just need to be really clear about your boundaries. And but in a, in a business, to take a sort of a business eye toward it, is a labor of love or is it groundwork that you're laying? 
I mean, by doing right. that, you got a book contract. Yeah. So that was maybe real, quote, exposure. Yeah. Um, unlike, say, having 10 people like your tweet. Right. Which On the other exposure. hand, if you went into your website right. saying to yourself, I'm going to do this website because that's going to tee me up for this other thing, I do think it has to be a labor of love as the impulse to nourish you throughout however long it takes till the yeah, thing the you hope happens. Yeah, the goal was not to tee myself like, up. The goal exactly. was just to do this thing because it seemed like people really wanted it and there was something And there. they did. So you mean like doing podcasts? For example, we love it. We love it. <laughs> I love it. I just like talking to people. I just like talking. Yeah. Podcasts are really fun, but I have to say doing book, prom- book promotion for this book, it really changes things when um, you all interviews are an hour it, and not like five to ten minutes. A lot more challenging. Yeah. <laughs> like if someone wants to interview you, they want you for an but hour. That's partly which why. Which I love because I love to talk to people about this. Yeah. But it changes things. But that's partly why it's such a great thing to have our community yeah. at the Grotto because we know each other. We can say, can you come for an hour? I would, I would, you have to have some balls to just kind of get a hold of somebody and say. We need you for an hour. An hour. That's a lot of people's time. Exposure. Well, I think yeah. people are getting used to it now, though. I mean, there's there's podcasts that people want to go on. Like, yeah, if I get an hour with Mark Maron. Oh my gosh! Of course, a million I would people pay will hear it. Mark Maron to have an hour with Mark Maron. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> if I talked to Mark Maron for an hour, I'd end up arguing with him, but it'd be great anyway. Oh, it would be so fantastic. Yeah, and I also think that there's something very depressing yeah, about having your work, your worldview, et cetera, et cetera, reduced to a three minute, which would be long, mm-hmm. soundbite, mm-hmm. and sure. to be able to kind of ruminate about it a little bit has a satisfying aspect, but maybe not a dozen times. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, right. I'm not complaining. Like, I'm yeah. happy to do it. I am grateful that anyone wants to listen to me talk about my book. But on the other hand, and theoretically, it helps sell books. But um, it is free. It's a lot of, it's a lot of time. A lot of yeah, time. I mean, there is this all of this sort of labor that goes into promoting creative work that um, is often not Which I was just going to ask you as we sort of start to wind down, uh, what's ahead for you as far as promotions and Book tours and all this stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Come see me, see me on book tour. Um, so I just had an event in San Francisco at Green Apple on Monday mm-hmm. night. It was awesome. The house was packed. Yay! It was really fun. Now, I had planned to go, introduce myself, etc. Oh, Two nice. things happened. Rain. Bridget didn't go. Oh, I never could go. I would go to your a basketball <laughs> game. And rain. And I live in Glen Park on this side of town. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's that, all good, man. That would have been. Um, you can fly to Austin and catch me there next week. My time to fly to Austin. I think that window closed about 20 years ago. <laughs> no way. I want to do this, but let's see where else you're going to be. I'm going to be in, in the next well, two months. I'm going to be pretend in it's February. Austin. Oh, okay. Uh, in February, I'm going to be in New York. I'm mm. going to be at AWP. I'm speaking on a panel, and I'll be haunting the book fair, hanging out at tables with Catapult um, and Sackett Street writers, um, answering questions if people want to come talk to me. Um, You're going to be a Saturday. big ADB draw. Okay, that just rung a bell on my head. What's your relationship with Sackett Street Writers? Julia Fierro, who started Sackett Street Writers, is a contributor to Scratch. Right, okay. And a lovely human. She's a lovely human. Yeah. Besides that. Um, That's awesome. And then I'll be in New York, and we're having a big party in New York, and everyone should come. It's at Powerhouse Arena, um, February 15th. Fun! Um, and then I'm speaking at Cornell that week. Wow. Um, and I am also doing an event in Portland, Oregon. Portland. The last weekend of February at with Powell's? Ms. Cheryl Strayed and fabulous. fabulous writers. Is she, at a, is she a Portland person? Yes. She seems like a Portland person. I'll hiking. Well, you're at Powell's. <laughs> Will you ask them if I could also do something there? Thank I, you. Well, one of the, sure. Well, one of the people who's speaking at the event works at Powell's, so we'll talk. 
All right, that'd be fantastic. All right, so this is it, how this is how it gets done. This people. is how it gets done. You people. just bald face ask people to do stuff for you. Right. Networking. That's what's called so networking. Yeah, with the, <laughs> exactly. With the Grotto Pod podcast, you not only get uh, forty-five minutes of entertainment, you also get useful tips. tips. Hit up your friends for writers and readers alike all the time. We've come to the close of this episode. Thank you, Manjula, for being here. Bridget, take it. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember our little closing thing that Your we came up with last thing. week. Come I know. on. I, okay, I know what it is. It's okay. read, write, and just keep working. That's great. Yes. That's my personal paid. motto. And get paid. And get Ooh, paid. The most important part. Mm, don't right that. there.